Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of Make the Shift. I'm your host, Adam Greenberg. Whether you're returning or listening for the first time, thank you for joining me on what promises to be a very special episode with an equally incredible guest. Today, we're discussing a topic that's very close to my heart, corporate social transformation. Corporations are facing a measurable mind shift, a movement, one that is generating a massive flood of resignations as employees demand more and more from their workplaces. Expectations are growing around the role businesses play in social and environmental issues. It's no longer simply about earning a paycheck. It's about fulfillment and feeling like you're making a difference in the world. Imagine a world where corporations are a force for good, where businesses play a critical role in creating purpose for their workplace, in improving lives and driving lasting change, where people feel inspired to learn, to help and to grow. A world that puts people first. Isn't it time for us to make the shift? I certainly think so. And that's why I invited well-known thought leader, speaker, business executive and podcaster who inspires people around the world every single day, Stephen Shedletsky, to show us how we can take the first steps in this corporate social transformation journey together. I'm excited, and I hope you are too. So let's go. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Make the Shift. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I just want to start by saying how much I admire the work you do. When, when we spoke about having you as a guest and, and started discussing this topic of corporate social transformation, I honestly, I wanted to just keep speaking with you all day. Even as we just started uh, this podcast and we're kind of getting ready, I just wanted to jump right in and, and chat. And <laughs> I know you're busy uh, and that a lot of people rely on your leadership and are inspired by you, including me. So thank you again for sharing some of your time with me and, and with all our listeners today. My pleasure. Let's uh, let's make some magic happen. For sure. But before we dive in, mm-hmm. I'd like to take my listeners behind the scenes just to learn a little bit about you personally and professionally. You're originally from Toronto, Canada, where you still live today with your wife and two children. Is that correct? That is correct. That's where I am right now uh, in the in the home office. We're all in the home office, aren't we? Uh, many of us, yeah. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a bit about your professional career? Um, the path that led you to your current position? Sure. So, I mean, my my career has been a series of uh, uh, experiences of pain and learning moments. Um, a, a big inspiration of mine has been, there, there have been a, a few sort of very big inspirations. Um, one of mine was a professor at, uh, at Western University at, at Ivy School of Business named Dennis Shackle, who gave me an experience of what fulfillment was. And because I had a chance to experience it when I entered into the corporate world and I went, what's this? You know, I, I felt alive in some of his classes. I felt as though I was using my strengths to contribute towards something bigger than me. That's what fulfillment is. Right. Every single one of us, every single human being, like fact, has strengths. 
Um, and when we use those strengths to contribute towards something bigger than ourselves and bigger than profit, the result is fulfillment. So I feel very fortunate that I had a professor and a mentor who showed me what fulfillment uh, was and felt like such that when I entered into something that wasn't evil or bad, it just simply wasn't for me. I, I don't want to say I knew better, but I had enough experience to know that something was amiss mm. uh, or that I could finally get to the point where something was amiss. When I entered into my corporate journey, um, it took me about four or five months to realize that I wasn't motivated or I wasn't as motivated as I could be. Um, I mean, I joined an organization first day on the job, a thousand people were let go post-merger. It was tumultuous. Wow. Um, I saw the impact on people's, not just their work productivity, but their, their mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw, you know, 37 year veteran of the company waiting for their pink slip to come next. Um, and so I was very thankful that, that was my first experience out of school. And it wasn't something that I had already devoted many, many years into. Um, and when I became unmotivated, the first person I made wrong was me. What's wrong with me? Why am I not motivated? You know, every choice I had made in my life to that point had felt good or right. It felt that there was potential. Um, and this was the first time in my life I made a choice where it didn't feel that there was potential. And my instinct was to make myself wrong first. Um, but fortunately, I don't really know how, but I came around. I, I think, Adam, I, I started to more so focus on what are the things that do interest me and what are the things I do have passion for. And then I began to move toward that. Um, uh, two other huge influences of me, because I think, you know, anyone who self-describes them as self-made run and run far, we are all but a product of the people who have taken the time to invest in us. And so two huge mentors of mine, one is my grandfather and another is Simon Sinek, who I worked with over the past 10 years. Um, so my grandfather is a Holocaust survivor. And when I was stuck in a, in a cubicle um, at, you know, 23, 24, uh, unmotivated, I asked myself, what was my grandfather doing at this time in his life when he was 23, 24? And the answer was, is he was leading eight people through hiding in the Polish country, countryside from, from Nazis. And I went for all that he did to sacrifice, to give my family a good, fair, decent shot at quality life. I cannot wilt and waste away here. I have to take this precious opportunity in life and career that I've been given and, and use it for good. And whether because I'm human or something else, because this is available to all of us, I just knew, you know, I was, I was experiencing disengagement. I was unmotivated, unfulfilled, uninspired. I wanted to feel the very opposite. And somehow I knew that helping other people feel that way, I would in turn feel that way myself. I don't know how I figured this out, whether it was what I was reading or just the fact that I'm human and we are a social and service-based animal. Um, and then I, I stumbled across Simon's work, Simon Sinek, who, the author of Start With Why, self-described optimist. Um, and I feel very, very fortunate that I was able to join forces with Simon very early in my career, fourth person to join his team. I mean, his work uh, spoke to me and still does. And so being able over the past 10 years to grow and develop with him and his organization has been 
um, a dream come true? Wow. Um, first of all, I, <clears throat> I agree with, with everything you're saying about Simon for sure. Uh, that's thank you for sharing uh, that about your your experience, your family, and and, and kind of what inspired uh, your your values and your belief system. I think that's that's incredible. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And you know, there's a lot of talk as well about about millennials and 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 how they feel. And when I when I hear you say we're all a product of our environment and, and our experiences, I think a lot of many millennials grew up seeing their their parents getting pink slips after 20 and 30 year careers and so that that sense of loyalty is really shifted and i think that's changed the way that uh, the next generation looks at work and rightfully so so it's mm -hmm. yeah I, I completely agree with with everything you said there it's it's uh, profound yeah but so loyalty loyalty is an output and loyalty is a feeling um loyalty is not a program um, and you need to get the right inputs to get that output. So what mm -hmm. are the inputs of loyalty? Well, uh, well, here's a really fun one. So I've recently come across um, uh, Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor's work uh, through their, their book, Prime to Perform, uh, the work of total motivation. And I think it ties in really nicely. I think these inputs will give you the outputs of loyalty. So uh, total motivation is play, purpose, potential. You want those to be high. The ones you want to be low are emotional pressure, financial pressure, and inertia. So play is you enjoy doing the work because it puts you into flow. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi or Martin Seligman, this notion of you're both challenged and skilled. Play is you do the work for the joy of doing the work. Uh, we all have things, whether we're paid for them or not, that we do simply for the the, the fact that it's play. Um, awesome. Uh, uh, purpose is you feel as though the work has impact beyond simply turning profit. You feel as though the work solves or meets a human need or advances a human cause. Uh, again, I think if we're involved in that, we feel loyalty, right? Loyalty is we're willing to continue to choose doing business with or for someone, even at our own inconvenience, meaning we're paid less or we have to show up early and stay late. There's some sacrifice involved. So play, purpose, potential. Potential is this is leading me to the next thing, which could be meaningful retirement or could be I wanna be a school teacher for the fact that I want to eventually become an administrator. So you want those three to be high and you want the other three, emotional pressure, shame, guilt, do it because I say so, do it or else, fear. You want those to be low. Uh, financial pressure is carrot and sticks. We know from Dan Pink's work that carrot and sticks work for very sort of simple, repetitive, tactical tasks like load donuts into box. If you do it quicker, we'll pay you more. That actually might be a good motivator, but for knowledge work, problem solving, complex work, uh, financial pressure actually makes it more unnerving and will decrease uh, motivation and performance, ironically. And then inertia is you simply do it because that's the way it's been done, not very motivating. Um, don't rock the boat, baby. Um, so I think, you know, those are the inputs. And I obviously trust. Trust isn't just a, a five-letter word that starts with T. It's imperative for, for business. If we don't have trust, right, 
we don't have relationship and relationship is the foundation of what we we can accomplish we're a social animal um especially when we're working on complex tasks we need to have close vulnerable trusting relationships to team to the best of our ability so i think th those are the inputs that g give us loyalty yeah <clears throat> I, I i agree and, and it reminds me of you know, obviously, uh, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but I, I, I really enjoyed reading uh, Eaters Late Lap. Eaters eat. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Leaders eat last. Yes. Uh, and and there's a there's a a conversation in there about control. Uh, I always thought you know the, the most stressful job as I've you know increased in my my career and accelerated my career is is kind of being at the top, being a CEO and responsible for. Uh, for everybody's uh, well-being uh, and caring for them and creating a safe environment is a big responsibility. And and when when I read uh, through through some of the research that shows actually it's the kind of entry-level positions, the, the ones that people don't feel they have a sense of control that are the most stressful. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I think there's something about what you what you just uh, referred to in there uh, that that also ties into that uh, that philosophy. I think it's I think it's any position. It's not just entry level, but I think it's any position in which you do not have um, uh, autonomy mm. or say over your future. Yeah. And so there, there sort of is this. It's a. It's you're totally right that it seems as though the more senior you get, the more responsibility you're. You now have to meet. You know, responsible for meeting payroll. But it's no. It's you know, if you don't meet payroll, well, you close down the business and you figure something else out. Right. Um, but it's the fact that there are these people who have chosen to invest their livelihood at the whim of you or the organization. Um, and so, yeah, no, you're totally right that it is more more unnerving not to have fate over your own destiny. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's a lot of stress in the world right now uh, where people feel a lack of control. They're not sure what to do. And, and that brings us really to our our key topic here, which is corporate social transformation. Um, you know, we, we live in a, a world that's increasingly polarized. It certainly seems to be, uh, and maybe social media feeds that because we're more aware of polarization, but, but some might even say the world is, is angry. I mean, when, you know, I, I look at, I'm on social media, different channels all the time, and I read a lot. Uh, and every day I'm bombarded with, with the effects of climate change, with, with Black Lives Matter, uh, pride and in, in, in the, the issues facing the LGBTQ community. Uh, here in Canada, Indigenous Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, there's the Me Too movement. I mean, there's so much going on and, and, and so much more than that. And it just feels like there's this spotlight, you know, on everything that's wrong. And, you know, sometimes I admit, and I'm sure others feel this way, it, it can be just, you want to throw up your hands and figure it's, it's just too much. Maybe someone else should should fix all this. So when you think about your experience and your career and all the things that have happened, and you think about the world today, it, the pandemic, like what gets you up, Stephen, and going in the morning, and, and what keeps you motivated, especially through the pandemic, to do to do your job of inspiring people uh, every single day? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to be aware that. <laughs> When it comes to social media and, and technology, we've become the product or our minds or our eyeballs have. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, one, there are some very interesting, dare I say, unethical things happening on those platforms 
that, you know, there's no such thing, Adam, as the truth. <laughs> I think there are simply multiple perceptions of it. Mm. And part of the danger with social media is the whole, the, the I don't want to say the whole purpose, but the way that game is being played right now is the more you engage with it, the more you're on particular platform, the more advertisement dollars they can get from your eyeballs, which is very dangerous because, oh, by the way, our use of technology and social media is closely tied to our dopamine reward system. And so our minds are telling us, stay on this platform. It's good for you, but it is not. It's actually one of the most antisocial things. And though technology is good for a few things, technology is good for access of information. Uh, we have to be careful of whether that information is true or not uh, based on reputable sources, but access of information. I mean, we'd have to open up an, an encyclopedia, look under the letter W and hope that there's an entry. Now you have a brain fart for that song. You type in a lyric and boom, you know, you, you have it, uh, which is amazing. Um, speed of transaction. We can have transactions across the globe at amazing rates and um, uh, forming a connection. I can now connect with people from all over the world, which is amazing. But what technology has been crud at is building, fostering, and maintaining meaningful relationships. Mm. It does some good things. Phone and video and all these things are good. Um, uh, but it doesn't replace building a relationship uh, in person, spending time together. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was someone that I was introduced to who lived very far away from me, and we started a seemingly like intimate romantic relationship over Skype. We spoke for many hours. We met in person, didn't work. Mm. Just didn't work. And could it have been wrong time, wrong place? Maybe. Could it have been something deeper on values and beliefs? Maybe. But it's just this notion that um, in-person relationships really do matter. Now, as the office continues to morph and change and we're more um, leaning upon hybrid or remote models, it's not that we can't build relationship over these platforms. We absolutely can. And we absolutely can have meaningful and caring and empathetic um, uh, uh, relationships over these platforms. We miss out on serendipity, which means, you know, you and I bump into each other as we head to the water cooler. We miss that. There are ways in which we can solve for that with technology. There are apps that can connect random people in a company or in a shared interest group. We can create some of that serendipity, but it needs to be created as right. opposed to organic. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, but still, I mean, there's still something to be said for coming together and being in person. It intensifies, uh, it intensifies that relationship building. And so, I mean, to your original question of what gets me out of bed and what keeps me going, I mean, we, we, we're living in, we're living outside of our comfort zone as a species. As a species, we are not designed to live in civilizations of thousands or millions or even billions of people. We're just not. 
So that's one thing is this notion of ab abstraction. The other thing is the fact that we don't slow down to look at good traffic or good driving. We slow down to look at accidents. It's part of our human nature that that bad stuff sells. Mm -hmm. I don't really, it's, it's, you know, there is the, there is the good news movement. There is something where we watch a good news story where we're moved or releases oxytocin with, within us that people are looking out and serving each other. I look out for those stories, but it's also car accidents sell, you know, bad news sells. Um, but what gets me going and what keeps me going always is relationships. It's these, it's, I mean, the fact that, you know, we've just met recently, but I said to you before we started recording this podcast that we are on the same team. Yeah. We believe in, in, you know, is it the exact same vision? Maybe not, but it, it's definitely complementary. And yet we come from different experiences and different parts of the world you know, we're both in Canada, but we're in different parts of, of Canada. And so we're both contributing to this shared vision of a more inspired, safe and fulfilled version of work, a more inspired and safe and fulfilled version of humanity. And we're working together to try to advance that ideal. Amazing. And so that's what gets me out of bed is both those relationships near, dear and close of dear friends, of family, and then the people that I feel so lucky to meet that are championing this cause of a more inspired, safe and fulfilled just as much as I am, and that we get to propel each other's efforts. Amazing. It, it really is. And, and, you know, hearing this and thinking about what led to this uh, opportunity to speak with you. And, and again, thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts with me and, and, and with our listeners thinking about social media, uh, thinking about the change in the world, it's really transformational. Um, when, when, when from in my own experience, you know, when I, when I first had an opportunity to, uh, to feel that inspiration and to connect the work that I do with meaning, with, with purposeful outcomes and make a difference uh, in the lives of others, it, it transformed me. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I see, you know, back to social, social media, just for a moment, I, I see, more and more business leaders taking to social media to, to take a stance on on some of these issues to take a stance on what 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 we saw with uh, with George Floyd what we see with climate change what we see with uh, with truth and reconciliation and me too and to, and to take a, a position and to try to to say that's not what we stand for and we want to inspire and and, and, and transform our employees to be more purpose driven. So I wanted to talk about that just for a moment. Um, yeah, the word transformation, first of all, and, and what it really means, and then, and then, what role do you think business really has when it comes to improving lives in our communities and uplifting our communities? Well, it is simply good for business to do it from the inside out. So there's lots I have to say on this. Maybe we should record a podcast about it. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so for, first and foremost, uh, the way I define transformation, and I got this from a, a dear friend of mine, Peter Docker, not Drucker, Docker. Um, he describes transformation as nothing has changed, yet everything is different. Mm. 
Transformation is when you see something in new light. When you, you know, uh, this comes from uh, the book Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, that uh, in, in organizations, uh, consciousness will never surpass the consciousness of its leaders. Mm. You, you know, and there's always two ways to create change, evolution and revolution. Evolution is top down. So goes the leader. So goes the organization. Revolution is bottom up. Now, what's interesting is the tail can still wag the dog. I mean, we've worked with, with organizations. I've worked with, with organizations, not at the highest level, but at a mid level. And we've seen that if, if leaders in the middle can transform, it, they can actually transform an, an organization, even without any direct in intervention. You just create pockets of the organization that become people first and purpose first. And all of a sudden, people want to work there. Discretionary effort goes up. Results in time, sometimes they'll go down at first because it's different. Mm -hmm. But in time, you know, certainly by two years, uh, if not uh, less, the traditional metrics begin to show. And then senior leaders pay attention. Um, but first and foremost, I mean, you even described it yourself, Adam, that you saw your responsibility as a leader transform, which meant your consciousness elevated is into you have a responsibility. So, you know, wonderful that there are more people, um, I say wonderful sort of facetiously, wonderful <laughs> that there are more leaders speaking about the most pressing issues that we face in society today, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, uh, climate crisis or climate cancer, as Simon likes to discuss and call it what it is. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, I think a huge social societal issue is um, organizations existing to grow for growth's sake at the expense of their people's well-being. You know, how dare an organization speak about corporate social responsibility if they themselves haven't gone on the process to transform, mm. you know? So, so wonderful that we're beginning to say the right things, but more impressive than your social media is what is the lived experience of your people on the inside? That matters to me way more. And I'd rather organizations spend far less on CSR and far more on internal transformation. If you give millions of dollars on, on end to charity X, Y, Z or Z, but yet the lived experience of your people on the inside is cancerous and toxic, shame on you. Um, you know, good that Gillette ran the very provocative ad in the wake of the Me Too movement of, of is this the best a man can get? wonderful, powerful ad, but if your experience on the inside as an employee is counter to that message, you have bigger issues and it is just marketing pablum. So, um, so yeah, I, I, all of these leaders and all of these organizations, it, we cannot stop at simply performative DEI um, and performative change. We must literally transform. Um, and we must commit to being the change that we wish to see in the world. Oh, and by the way, it's really good for business. <laughs> right. No, it's be really beautifully said. It, beautifully said. Now, some may challenge that, which, which is okay. Some may say, well, wait a minute. Like, uh, we, 
we don't exist to do that. We exist to make razors. We exist to make boxes or cars or whatever it is. And it's the role of government. It's the role of NGOs to uh, to lead social transformation. You know, it's too polarized. We we don't want to uh, be responsible for. We we could we could turn people away, customers and employees. Like so, is, is it fair to suggest to big business out there that they that they have this responsibility? And is it responsibility or or is it an opportunity? It seems to to it seems like you're saying it's an opportunity more than a responsibility. Yeah, this is not this is not the ticket to get into the ball, but this you know this isn't. Um, I don't think this is a responsibility. I think to your point, it is an opportunity and it is a choice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, business has the influence, ability, and nimbleness to take some of these issues on at a far quicker rate than governments and NGOs by way of red tape. Um, that organizations, businesses uh, are able to help lead a lot of this change. And then it, it is not a must, you know, what do you need to operate a, a business? A balance sheet, I guess, a product or service to sell, cool. Um, uh, but when you begin to have quite a bit of fun and then back to the conversation, Adam, of loyalty, mm. both of your customers and of your employees. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example of this. A perfect example is Simon writes about this in his latest book, The Infinite Game. Uh, of the courage to lead. So the courage to lead is doing what is um, in the best interest of the group ahead of your own uh, personal interests. Mm -hmm. The courage to lead is making values-based decisions over interest-based decisions, which means you may make a decision that in the short term costs you real dollars or costs an inconvenience, but it is simply the right thing to do. I mean, the Titanic, the regulation at the time, because it was old regulation, the regulation hadn't caught up to the size of the ship. The regulation said that they only had to do lifeboats for 25% of the population. And they chose to meet the regulation, not surpass the regulation and do what was right by their ethics. They chose aesthetics and luxury as the value, not human life. And when the unsinkable ship went down, guess what percentage of people survived? 25 a great example of an organization that has had the courage to lead is CVS. CVS, which for us in Canada, it's Shoppers Drug Mart of the South. Um, they are a pharmaceutical retailer, health retailer. They have uh, competition in their market. They're number one by volume or revenue. Um, I'm not so big into these number ones, but whatever, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, also in their industry, uh, uh, Walgreens, Rite Aid. Uh, on all of their websites, they have a purpose, and it's all something to do with to inspire people to lead healthier lifestyles. Um, the big, fat, dirty secret is that they sell many products that are seemingly not in the best interest of human being health. Um, one of, of um, I'm sure, many, because I'm sure they sell some unhealthy snacks and foods, um, but one of them was cigarettes and tobacco products. Mm -hmm. CVS sold $1.5 billion worth of tobacco products, not to mention the other 500 million that people would spend coming in to buy a pack of smokes or whatever it might be. CVS looked at their purpose and they went, that's not right. And they took cigarettes and tobacco products off all of their shelves 
overnight. Now, I know it wasn't just a snap decision, but across, they didn't test it. They didn't market it and pilot it in some of their stores. They didn't try, you know, changing product placement. They just said, we don't sell it anymore. Wall Street braided them. How could you? You're handing away market share. Their stock price went down. But that day was one of the most proud days for thousands of employees who work for CVS. There's one story of someone who had just lost their father to lung cancer, and her mother called her in tears, um, so proud that her daughter worked for such an organization that would do the right thing. Um, no customers love a company until the employees love it first. And for all of you who go, well, what about Amazon? Yeah, no one loves Amazon. We like the convenience of Amazon. Yeah. No one loves Amazon. And they're right for the picking, save for the fact that they're a monopoly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, amazing things happened with CVS. Courage to transform. Courage to take a social responsibility. Uh, to, to take a stand for that. Um, so... Uh, so employees were proud to, to work. The market for cigarettes shrunk by 1% in the United States of America, simply because one player had the courage to say, we don't sell those anymore. 70% of U.S. smokers wish to quit. And so when those smokers went to CVS and they said, I'd like to buy my pack of smokes, and they said, we don't sell them anymore, would you like to buy a remedy? And they actually did. Wow. And and the entire market shrunk by 1%. Further, vendors who sold health products that previously wouldn't touch CVS with a 10-foot pole came running. We want to do work with that organization. We want our products displayed in that, in those stores. Rite Aid and Walgreens still sell cigarettes in their stores. When asked why, one said we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, and the other said we're piloting uh, changing the product placement in some of our stores. In other words, finite-minded, short-term cowardice. Mm -hmm. And so it's good for business when you take a stand that actually represents your values and beliefs, and people who share in those values and beliefs will run toward you. We saw this when Nike took a stand with Colin Kaepernick. Yep. And they lost business. But on the whole, they did far better because they took a stand for what they believed in. And it wasn't just convenient. It was very inconvenient. Yeah, that's a great example. I love that story. And, and you know, I, I remember it well. I mean, there's so much there. There's a lot to break down in what you said. I, I think about that whole shift in consciousness. Uh, I think about... Um, I think about Nike. I think about the whole cigarette uh, change in consciousness. You think about there's so much there and it's so, so very true uh, as organizations are making the shift uh, to being more focused on social outcomes versus purely financial ones. And, and there are opportunities, like you said, opportunities to create a more loyal employee base, which is going to drive growth, happier employees equal happier customers. Uh, I think that's uh, to me that that's obvious. Um, and I think about that, you, you mentioned the, the consciousness shift. I mean, one of the things that I'm particularly proud of at Makeshift is when we have a, a all hands call, we, we kick it off with, with some very important KPIs. And these are KPIs that I learned from a, a, another leader that I had been fortunate enough to have a, a mentor in my life, uh, who's a, a great guy. And he said, you know, your KPIs are how many employees uh, were able to afford education for their children, how many employees 
were able to purchase their first home. Uh, how many employees have have great health coverage so that they don't uh, they don't have to worry about their financial stability when they're sick? And and so we kick off these things. And I was our meetings with with celebrating these things. And I was reviewing some of these KPIs. And someone was recently married. Uh, someone's one's uh, daughter went into remission uh, from cancer, and they're that the family is is financially stable. Someone bought their first home, and these are things to be truly proud of. And then the financial ones will follow. Um, so I appreciate you you saying that. Um, if I can just jump back to technology for for a moment, because sure. I'm I'm the CEO of a technology company. Um, you know, that's one of the things. Obviously, I'm also the founder of a of a nonprofit. I believe in all the things that you're saying, um, but I I believe that technology can and will continue to play a positive role uh, as well, um, not just a, a negative role. I mean, the negativity and, and hate can be suffocating. I, I experienced it myself when uh, I, I got involved with uh, with raising funds to try to sponsor a, a Syrian family to relocate to Canada. And I thought, what a great thing that I'm doing. And I posted it on social media and I had people donating and family, but, but there were also people that were just like, spiteful and hateful. So it, it, it goes both ways. Um, social media seems to be at the center of our problems, but, but is technology, in your opinion, is technology creating conflict or, or providing that opportunity to learn, to connect and to grow? And, and where do we draw the line between kind of our, our lives and our work life? And is there really a difference? So, I mean, here's the thing. Technology isn't going away. Um, I mean, you can choose to disassociate yourself from it. Um, but I kind of, kind of sort of view technology as kind of oxygen, <laughs> meaning, you know, even if you live in a remote part of the world and, and, you know, live amongst bears and trees, maybe there's a, there's a way. Um, uh, but as long as you use, Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi as I as I call it, like you're, yeah. it, it's here, and the rate of change and, and innovation, it's not going to slow down. Um, I simply think we need. Uh, I think technology and social media is the wild, wild west, wild, wild west right now. And yeah. I know we were speaking previously about Section Two Thirty in the United States Communication and Decency Act, which essentially makes all of the social media platforms uh, not liable for anything that their users say or do, which I don't think is right or healthy. It's a it's an unregulated environment. And I think we need some regulations. I think, you know, is it so unreasonable that maybe you should provide uh, a government issued ID to have a Twitter account? Are there ways to fake that? Yeah, but you know, I think we need. I think we need to have far stronger, um, uh, far stronger boundaries and regulations, mm -hmm. um, because I, th I there's there's a lot of harm that is being caused, but I still have no doubt in my mind that technology is part of the future and is the future. Um, and I think, again, we need, I mean, so if we go back to the root of this, I think there's a few people who are very responsible for the state of the world we have right now. One of them 
is Milton Friedman. Hmm. Uh, Milton Friedman theorized in 1978 of the responsibility of business. Uh, and one of his uh, uh, practitioners of these ideas was Jack Welch of CEO of GE. But Milton Friedman theorized in 1978 out of Harvard that the responsibility of business is to maximize profit and shareholder value while staying within the bounds of the law and ethical custom, which is hogwash. I mean, that's yeah. BS, you know, ethical custom. Well, it's become ethical custom that at the end of the year, when your numbers don't look good, you just lay people off. That's become ethical custom. It does not mean it's ethical. And so um, uh, I don't believe in that responsibility of business that essentially says that the purpose of business is to grow no it's not the only thing that grows for growth sake is cancer there needs to be a higher standard so i believe and and simon sinek believes and he's put this into wonderful language that the responsibility of business oh and by the way milton friedman won a a, a nobel prize for economics the first ever awarded seth godin told me that he paid for it wow um, so rumor has it. I, I believe the responsibility of business and in this order um, uh, is to advance a purpose, to give people both inside and outside of, of the organization a sense of belonging, that because I'm a, I buy from this company or work from this company, I'm advancing something that meets and advances and solves a human need. To protect our people, this has everything to do with the people who work with us the people who buy from us and the uh, communities within which we operate, which means that you have a responsibility for, 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 for the climate crisis as well. Because if you don't, we're really, you know, our lease is going to expire uh, and we're not owners, we're renters, crappy ones at it, might I add as well. Um, and then finally, I'm a capitalist. I'm just more akin to Adam Smith economics and Milton Friedman economics, the invisible hand. The purpose of competition is to give your consumer a better product. Mm. Um, Milton Friedman economics is about uh, producer-based economics, which is why you have these financial institutions who will give you a new credit card with updated terms of service, which never benefit you. It always benefits them. And they wonder why the cost of acquiring and retaining a customer is so high. Again, loyalty is a feeling, not a program. And so great leaders and organizations are great because they put the needs of others ahead of their own. Every organization must exist to serve its end users, of course, not serve shareholders. That doesn't make sense. But when org an organization exists to serve an end user, leaders must exist to serve their people. And the more senior you are, the further away you are from the customer, and you're no longer responsible for the results, you're responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. And when your people feel cared for, your people will care for one another. And when your people care for one another, that always makes it to the customer, the end user, who takes care of the shareholder or the financial results. Like, this is not so hard. It's just the right order. And any shortcut might give you short-term results, but not long-term. And if that's the path you pick, all like I, I don't have an issue with that. Just don't lie. Don't say we're a family. And yet you're just trying to position yourself to be purchased by private equity and let everyone go. You wouldn't do that to, to, to family. So I, I'm fine with organizations saying we only care about profit. Fine. Give your consumers a chance to make a choice 
rather than seemingly caring, seemingly caring about people and then treating people like, like garbage. Um, I mean, Walmart is a great example of, of an organization that didn't do this and then now is. Mm. Um, where they had many hard years, but they, they've cleaned up their act and they're working very hard on actually doing what they say. Good for them. Um, so those are a few more thoughts. I hope I'm being coherent here. <laughs> no, you're being, you're being totally coherent. I follow you. So, um, and I, I, I really, you know, appreciate your, your insights. It's, it's really, um, uh, really, uh, appreciated, uh, and inspiring and, and it's an important topic right now. I think that the world in front of us is transforming. Every single community in every country is going through this transformation because it, it's time. I, and I think that the pandemic really, really shone a, shone a light on it. Yeah. Uh, but but it was already starting to happen through through these various movements. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting, and there's a nice dichotomy into this, is is cancel culture. Mm. which I think can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between intent and impact and leaders own their impact, whether it's intended or not. Mm -hmm. I may say or do something that's completely ignorant. It may offend people, even if it wasn't my intention. I think we need to live in a society in which we meet those people with empathy first mm -hmm. rather than divisiveness because we need to view people, uh, help them become allies. Mm. Now we also live in a world in which the truth does come out. And if we, if we are a peacock, meaning we say all the right things, but we're found out. I mean, Como is just an example of this. Who's just resigned as the New York governor. Saw that. Well, yep. Great example of the truth will catch up to you. Yeah. However, you know, human beings are infallible i do i feel as though we need to punish someone for a choice or a mistake they made at age 17 and they've grown and become a better person at 34 i really hope so um but i i do think we need to be careful with this cancel culture as well because i i feel as though there are people who are genuinely trying and if they make a mistake i think we should we should meet that person with empathy as opposed to the very people who are trying to solve the issue are part of the issue themselves in knocking them down. So it's delicate. It's very delicate. Um, you know, I think, I think we need far more empathy than, than we ever, than, than we have right now. And I'll give you a little quick example of this, which is, Please. you know, we, I'm part of a, a, a remote team in my work that I do with, with Simon Sinek. I had a colleague reach out to me last week saying, um, I have an issue. I'm communicating with a team member on Slack and there's an issue and I don't know what to do. How do I respond? And I said, have you picked up the phone? Mm. And, and they said, no. And I said, try that. Chances are this person doesn't have the complete picture or doesn't know everything or doesn't know the impact that they're having on you. Pick up the phone and say, I got your message. I have a concern. I don't think it's your intention. Can we talk about it? Yeah. And I, 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 I almost guarantee that the response from the recipient will be, thank you. I had no idea. And it will lead to improvement. This is candor with care. Kim Scott has done great work on this 
with her work uh, in her book, Radical Candor, which is, you know, I just put this out on LinkedIn earlier, Adam, that, um, you know, no relationship is perfect, zero. Um, uh, the, two, the, the true test and strength of a relationship is the degree to which you feel comfortable having a hard conversation. Mm. If you don't feel like you can, that is not a psychologically safe relationship, probably not going to work out so well. Yeah. But if you feel as though you can have those tough conversations that lead to improvement, which could be, hey, Adam, you said something and it actually offended people and I don't think you you knew it. And your response is, oh, my God, tell me, like, not my intention. And I got to go clean it up. Right. And if if we if we cancel people, we lo- we deprive them of the opportunity to be human, fallible and work on picking up the pieces and and improving. Are there circumstances where people should be ousted from society? Maybe, like I'm, I'm open to that, you know. Um, but I think we have to be very weary of canceling people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like having tough conversations that you just described, confrontation, if you will, uh, is is like a, a dying art. It's like something people are are, are unable to do these days it, with the rise of. Uh, of, of, of instant chat messaging and, and this, this lack of picking up the phone. I mean, I have my, you know, my smartphone like you do, it very rarely rings. Uh, most of my communications are done uh, through texts and, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think you make a great point there. It's almost like driving, you know, it's easy to, to honk and give someone the finger, but you would never do that walking across the street uh, past them. There's a brilliant, of all places, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel. It was either Kimmel or Fallon. But yeah. One of the late night shows. Yeah. Um, when Robinson Cano, who is an all-star second baseman with the New York Yankees, he signed as a free agent, I believe. I could be getting some of the facts wrong. But he left New York. He was a born and bred, you know, New York Yankee. And he went to the Seattle Mariners. And so what they did on his homecoming, when he was coming back, from uh, from Seattle and playing in New York. They put a life-size model of Robinson Cano on the street and interviewed people walking by, saying, if Robinson Cano were in front of you right here, what would you say to him? Mm-hmm. And you had Yankee fans cussing and saying okay. some of the most awful things. And then they turn around and speak to the interviewer and outside of this life-size box, the real human being, Robinson Cano came out, people turned around and 10 times out of 10, they were yeah. effusive. Yeah. And, and they, oh my God, Robbie, I'm so sorry. I have so much respect, like every <laughs> single time. Yeah. And so again, we are abstract. We, we haven't evolved. We are a species that came from living in in tribes of 100 to 150. Um, Robin Dunmar has done research to show that we can maintain about 150 stable social relationships. Some of us 250, others of us 100. Um, But this is why, I mean, if you're a CEO of an organization or a mayor of a a city, you can't say, I care about all 10,000 of my employees or 10,000 of my citizens, let alone 3 million. It's biologically impossible. But all we can do is extend and show care 
to the people who we touch, see, and know every single day and say, I do it not for free. I do it so that you will pass it on to others. But service orientation, acts of service and generosity are contagious. They're positively contagious. Yeah. Um, it releases oxytocin within us that boosts our immune system, makes us all the more likely to do acts of service for another. That's why we watch a Pampers commercial, pause it as we're recording our, our favorite program and watch it. Because if you're a parent and you don't cry during a Pampers commercial, something's wrong with you. Um, I thought it was uh, just me. No, no, I, I get teary-eyed as well. And so when we hide behind text, Twitter, Slack, email, it is far, you know, I think the standard on the internet should be know that there is a human being mm. behind yeah. the, the other end. And the number of times I've had many people comment on things on social media for me that are uh, awful. And I'll either just disengage if it's hateful, I'll have it deleted, or I'll let it be there to let other people come to my aid, or I'll, I'll respond and remind them that I'm a human being who's actually right. impacted by what they, they wrote and treat them with uh, empathy, love, and, and respect, because why not? Um, but technology is good for transaction. It is not good for relationship. Here's that report you wanted. Here's the meeting link, mm. you know, Anytime it goes to emotion or idea, pick up the phone, have a conversation. Well, um, what did you think of that idea? Anytime it becomes emotional, you know, it's not going to get better with, with any text response that you make. Well said. Stephen, at the beginning of this episode, we, we promised our listeners that we'd help them take the first steps on this corporate social transformation journey. Yeah. Uh, to engage and mobilize their employees and their customer communities and, and to engage people to empower them to solve some of the big issues uh, that are facing our, our world, our planet. Do you have any final advice you'd like to share or thoughts uh, to leave with our listeners as we kind of wrap up towards the end of the hour here? Absolutely. Make it personal. Mm. You know, for, for people who go, oh, it's just business. It's not personal. I'm sorry. Business is probably one of the most personal things ever. Mm -hmm. And and for those who go, oh, yeah, but, you know, our customers or vendors don't speak to anyone human. It's all done via app or chatbot. You know, good luck for you with that. That can work at scale only to a certain point. Yeah. So you have a huge blow up. And then who saves the day? People. <laughs> Always. Um, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate that to really mess things up requires a computer like it's only good for so much until you gotta adapt and make make a fix and so for anyone who wants to be part of a corporate social transformation you have to make it personal you have to find something that you deeply care about and this is for people at the highest levels of of an organization or a baggage handler at your local airline you you must find something that that you can connect with play purpose or potential again referencing doshi and, and, and mcgregor's work with prime to, to perform you have to find something that motivates you and if you make it personal you can uh you can choose to transform you can find ways to transform yourself um this has to be a choice brilliant well said Thank you once again, Stephen, so much for your time and, and for your insights today. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. I hope we can do it again soon, and and I hope we have a chance to you know to sit across from each other 
and have another conversation uh, another time uh, in person. I would, I would really enjoy that. Thank you again very much. Thank you, Adam. My total pleasure to do this. And, and uh, you know, having the chance to do this helps me uh, learn and expands the way I think and uh, have those thoughts affect the way I act and behave as well. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you once again so very much for your time and insights today. It's been a sincere pleasure, and I hope we can do it again soon. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me next month as we continue to make the shift together. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can visit podcast.makeshift.ca and do so right now. You can also look for at Makeshift app and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you'd like to join me on my show or share your feedback with me, feel free to drop me a line at agreenberg at makeshift.ca. If you'd like to connect with Stephen, you'll find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at Shed Inspires. All of our links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Adam Greenberg, and I'll see you next time on Make the Shift.